The reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chooses us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, Arcadia. Happy Labor Day weekend. We are glad to see you. If you are new here, my name is Frank, and I'm uh, the pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. If you wonder why I keep saying where we are, it's because Redemption is actually one church with uh, eight local congregations, soon to be nine. We're soon going to have Redemption uh, Scottsdale that's being planted out of uh, Redemption Arcadia. And so we're excited about that, and so we always identify ourselves as the Arcadia flavor of Redemption Church. Um, Over the last several months, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and uh, the the, the lead pastors uh, got together in in the scheduling of of, of of these sermons and decided that Labor Day Sunday we would take a little break from uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we would do whatever we wanted uh, locally, and, and so I've chosen something. Uh, some of you know that um, uh, for the past 19 years in a row now, every summer, uh, I go to a place in northeast Iowa called Village Creek Bible Camp, where I get to be a pastor of a family camp for a week, along with another uh, pastor. This year it was a guy named Sam Key from uh, just north of, of uh, Chicago. His, his church is just north of Chicago. And so I get to teach at chapel the Bible um, uh, during this week of family camp. And so I wanted to show you a picture. Of just uh, it, This is like, for, for me, this is like heaven on earth for me. This is uh, the, the camp. It's 220 acres of the most, I know some of you are like, really, Iowa is beautiful? Well, this part of Iowa is, is actually beautiful. Uh, it's fa- they've got a lake there. They've got a, an incredible gym the food is unbelievable. They have, uh, they're four, four miles from the Mississippi River, so we go kayaking on the Mississippi every year, which is a lot of fun. They have a zip line. You can shoot guns. You can um, avoid being shot by guns. There's a lot of stuff that you can, that you can do there. It's, it's really a, a great place. And uh, I, I've always been just, I don't know, a little bit confused by the whole idea of family camp, that people would actually spend money costs about $1,100 uh, to take your family to this camp for a week that you would spend money 
um, on vacation and go and hear 10 sermons in one week. I mean, that's 10 times more than you hear in a week, usually. So it's, it's just fascinating to me. And they fill the camp. Every, I mean, they absolutely fill the camp. Sometimes uh, they, they double up on, on rooms and everything. It's, it's uh, really interesting to me. Uh, this summer, what I decided to do for my five times in chapel was I decided I would, I would um, kind of take some selected passages out of Ephesians and teach through them. And so I know some of you are like, oh man, we're getting a recycled sermon this morning. No, that's not exactly right. Um, th- there's an old saying that preachers have, you never really learn how to preach a text until after you've actually preached it. And so now, maybe this time, it's actually going to resonate with some people. So, so you have that to look forward to. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first 14 verses of this letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And, and um, just by way of, of instruction, I want to give you two little instructions up front. Number one, generally speaking, when I preach a message, I have two or three main points that we're going to work through. Uh, well, we're actually going to have 24 main points this morning, okay? Now, they're going to go really, really fast, but we have 24 main points that we're going to work through. And you're going to understand that in a few minutes as we begin to unpack this text. Um, the second thing, though, is that I would encourage you, because of that, um, I, would, I would, if you're a note taker, we have a lot of note takers at Redemption Church. I would encourage you, don't take any notes this morning. Just, just, just let the Word of God wash over you. And if you want notes, if you're a driven type A personality like I am, get the podcast later and take notes then, or reread the text yourself and take, no- take notes then, or, or something. Just, I just want you to put all your stuff down and just let the Word of God bless you um, this morning. And, and, and we start by just talking a little bit about the context of this letter that Paul w- writes to the church in Ephesus. Uh, a lot of people like to argue over what was fa- Paul's, the apostle, his favorite church. And, and it really usually boils down to two. It's either Philippi or Ephesus. I'm kind of in the Philippi camp. I think that's his favorite church. But, but uh, there's a great case for him uh, really favoriting um, the, F- uh, the church at Ephesus. He's, he weeps over that church. He weeps with the leaders of that church. He writes them this magnificent uh, letter as a blessing to that church and its people. But where is he writing from? This is interesting. Paul is actually writing in the year 62 AD to the church in Ephesus, just a couple of years before he's executed for his faith, and he's writing from the Roman prison. He is in prison for his faith. He's in prison for, for proclaiming the gospel and being seen by the Roman government as some sort of an agitator. And yet he writes and he says, I'm writing to you by the will of God. He doesn't write to the church in Ephesus and say, oh, woe is me, I'm stuck here in church. But rather, he writes and he says, this is by the will of God. This is actually a good thing that God has me here. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to write to you and tell you all of my problems. I'm going to write to you and tell you how blessed you are to be a part of the kingdom of God and to be a part of, of, of the people of God. And the main purpose for him writing is to expound on the sovereignty and authority of God while also talking about the unity that the people of God have in Christ. So, so the sovereignty, the, the fact that we talked about this last week, God is in control. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. His sovereignty, but also how that brings us unity as God's people. And, and there's like three major themes that we can identify in the entire letter to the church in Ephesus. One is that as both creator and redeemer, Christ is reconciling all things to himself. 
He's not just reconciling his people to himself, but he's reconciling the entire creation to himself. Second of all, um, this is a this is a major theme. And some people would say it is the theme of of Ephesians, and that is that we find our unity in Christ, even though we are a very diverse people. Uh, Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you've been homogenized into a particular um, uh, way of behavior or, or giftedness or a look, but in fact, we celebrate the fact that we are different, and yet we find our unity and identity in Christ. And then third, because of all that God has done for us, he, he continually talks about the joy and gratitude that we should live in because of what he's done for us in Christ. And so let me, let me here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do, I'm going to do verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to do verses 3 through 14, and you'll see why uh, those 12 verses will all go together in just a second. But let me just first start with this very standard um, uh, introduction that Paul writes. It's, a, it's similar to many of the other introductions that he writes in his other letters. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He identifies himself. And, he write, and then he says, here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's already, he, he's one verse into this thing. He's already said uh, in Christ Jesus and of Christ Jesus now twice. And then verse two, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So standard introduction, he's saying, I'm an apostle Paul writing to you. And and if you want to know more about how he became an apostle, you can read the book of Acts chapter 9 and see that magnificent story in there. And for years I used to think that you know, he was writing and, and he would say, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, to try to drive home the idea that he has authority. But more recently... I've, I've been coming to grips with the fact that he's not writing, I'm the Apostle Paul, to drive home his authority, but rather to, to again expound on God's grace and the will of God and how he's fully submitted to that. That it's not a statement of authority, but it's a humble statement of who he is in Christ. And he is writing by the will of God. He's saying that everything that happens is all of God's doing. He's sovereign and he's in control. He, he's He's writing at this particular moment, just a few years before his execution, from prison to people who are generally free and have not experienced prison as he has. And he's writing to tell them of the, of the riches and glory of God's grace and the, mysterious, um, the, the mystery of God that is now ours through Jesus Christ. He says, this is all by the will of God that I'm sitting in a jail cell and I'm writing to you to talk about how blessed you are, and actually how blessed he is as well. And then he identifies them. He says, I'm writing to uh, Ephesus, but I'm writing to the saints in Ephesus. That's an interesting word that he would use there. That word saints literally means the holy ones. Okay, if you know Christ right now, understand that you are a holy one. And I know you're sitting there going, I'm not so holy. And that person sitting next to me, I guarantee you, has some holiness issues. I understand that. I understand people are looking side by side, side to side right now. That's really interesting. But I, I understand that. I get that. But because of the finished work of Christ, and if you're now in Christ, which Paul says to the holy ones in Christ, God looks at you and sees you right now as justified and righteous. You are in the process of being sanctified, but God looks at you and sees you sanctified because he sees the finished work of Christ, not all the work that you're trying to do. This is the grace of 
Jesus Christ. And he says, in Christ. You know, in Paul's writings, he uses that little idiom, in Christ, 176 times. So it must be important. So what does it mean? Well, being in Christ, first of all, two things. First of all, primarily means that's where you and I should find our identity, is in Christ. We don't place our identity in all of the things that we used to, prior to Christ, try to place our identity in or construct our identity in. And frankly, we live in a, we live in a culture that is so blessed materially and with wealth and with success and with achievement and with opportunity that, that, that we spend so much time chasing this thing called our identity. And we place our identity in our, we may place it in our ethnicity or in our career or in our education or in our health and, and well-being or we, or we place it in who we hang out with or where we live or what we drive or how much money. We, we place our sexuality, we place our identity first and foremost in all of those things looking to be fulfilled. And Paul comes along and says, no, your fulfillment comes by being in Christ. That is your primary identity. It really should be the only way that you identify yourself as a Christ one, a Christian. And so we look at that and, and, and realize that all of these identities that we've been trying to construct in our life uh, in the past that, that aren't in Jesus, they're just idols. They're just things that we're looking to use for fulfillment and happiness, and they've really let us down. But genuine fulfillment comes from by putting our identities in Christ. Have you, ever, have you ever just gone through Twitter or Facebook and read profile pages? They, they, are, they are just massive treatises on the different identities that we are seeking to find. And, and really, our identity, Paul is saying, is in Christ. But second of all, it also means the power to live lives, as Paul says, according to our calling in the gospel. In other words, to live as those who are now in Christ and following Christ to the glory of God, we now have the power to start to live that kind of life, to live for God and not for ourselves, to live for God and not for our agenda. The power to be able to do that. Many of us, uh, be, I, I'll just talk autobiographically, before I came to know Christ when I was 27, I, you know, I'd want to clean up my life and, and make myself look better for God and do all of these things so that God would accept me. If there is a God, I'm just you know, covering all my bases, got my insurance policy in my hip pocket. And, and, and really, how long would that last? Cleaning up your life? We just don't have the power to do it. Our human nature just, just really sulks towards sin. And Paul is saying, now you have the power to do it. We think of the gospel generally as something that happens right at conversion, and then we, and then we start to try to live the life of, of a Christian. But really, in Christ, by the power of the gospel, that's how we are to live that life. The gospel gives us the power to live that life. And so you may even say, you may be new to all of this, and you say, okay, well, you keep using that word gospel. What does that mean? Well, gospel literally means good news, and the good news is this, that because you and I, the way we're born, our human nature is bent towards missing the mark, not towards holiness. It's bent towards sin. It's bent toward mischief. It's bent towards all of these things that are very self-centered rather than God-centered. We have separated ourselves from God by our sin because God is holy and he cannot abide with, with sin. And so if any of us ever come to the notion that maybe there is a God out there like I did before I was saved, that maybe there, was a, there is a God out there somewhere, what, what, what we do is we start to think about how we can 
clean ourselves up or work our way towards God, make ourselves good enough for God. And the problem is, is that you and I can never make ourselves good enough for God because the, the standard is actually perfection. And we've already blown that, right? We are already not perfect. So we're messed up there. But God, in his wisdom, in his good pleasure, according to his will, and according to his grace and his mercy, he has sent his son to do what we couldn't do. We couldn't fulfill the law. We couldn't fulfill the Mosaic law or even the law that we might confine ourselves to, a self-imposed law or code of living. We can't even live up to that. But Jesus has done what we weren't able to do, what the law was not able to do for us. He has fulfilled the law. And by fulfilling the law and then going and dying as a sacrifice for our sin to forgive us of our sins and reconcile us and unite us to God for eternity and to raise us into a new life and give us a new creation through his resurrection, the good news is that he has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so instead, we place our faith in him. We are now in Christ. And that, that, I, that gospel then gives us the ability to say we're in Christ and we can live with the power of Christ. And so then you move on to these next 12 verses. Let me reread them for you. But this time as I reread them, I want you to listen to them maybe a little bit differently than you did when, when Mark read them. In, in English, there are several sentences here in verses 3 through 14. But in fact, in the Greek, this is one sentence in the Greek. This is one continuous thought of the Apostle Paul as he just pours out his heart onto the parchment here. So one thought, one thesis here with 24 main points. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That, that is just an amazing sentence. And there's so much there. Uh, many people look at Ephesians 1, and particularly this section of Ephesians 1, specifically to construct doctrine and to make systematic theology. And, and that's a good thing. I, I'm not saying that's wrong or we shouldn't do that. We should do that. But I've also noticed that in doing so, we often miss what Paul is really trying to get across here. While there is wonderful doctrine in there, one of, what he's trying to get across to us is his main thesis, and that's this. We should bless God. Why? Because he has blessed us first. And this entire sentence is about that blessing. So, so how has he blessed us? Well, 
It says in the text, with every spiritual blessing. Well, what are those spiritual blessings? Again, we, we look to the text. I know Jerry once said to Elaine, look to the cookie, Elaine, look to the cookie. But we're in church, so we're going to look to the text. That's a really bad Seinfeld reference, but a couple of you appreciate that, okay? Those of you that eat muffin tops and that's it. Anyway, we look to the text. We look just to the text here, and there's 24 spiritual blessings that he outlines here. I'm going to spend like 15 seconds on, on some of them, and some of them I'll spend two minutes on, but we're going to get through them in the next 30 minutes. So starting with verse 4, there's two of them right out of the gate. God chose us. Big gulp. Yikes. A lot of people hear that language, and they get nervous right out of the gate. God chose, I thought I chose God. No, God chose us. And he did it before the foundation of the world. That's actually a blessing too, that he did it before the foundation of the world. Well, what does that mean? It means that he chose us in eternity past, before creation even existed. He chose us before we were born. He has planned this all along. And I know, I know for a fact, based on conversations I've had, that, that for many people, the first response when they hear something like that is, not fair, not fair. That's not fair that he chooses some, and apparently he doesn't choose others. I, I would suggest that while I can understand that response, it might be the wrong response. Here's what's fair. What's fair is the consequences of our sin. That's what's fair. What's fair is that we would reap what we sow. That's what's fair. That's Romans 1, by the way. What's fair is that we would not have the presence of God if we're telling God, I want to do things my way. I want to do things without you. I don't want redemption. I don't want salvation. I would rather live in my sin. What's fair is for God to say, okay, you can have that then. That's what's fair. Some people would say it's justice, and justice is fair. If you're a person who, who appreciates justice, you should look at this and go, okay, justice is fair. The consequence of sin is fair. By that, then maybe grace is unfair. Maybe grace really is unfair. But here's the problem. He's God, and we're not, and it's his grace, and so it's his grace to give as he sees fit according to his wisdom according to his good pleasure, and according to his will. I would suggest that, that rather than saying unfair, unfair, I, I think a better response might be, well, why me? Why has he lavished this on me? Why me? Uh, one author writes this, uh, some people need to stop with the fake religious piety and self-righteousness, pretending to be indignant about those who are not saved, and start being thankful about their own salvation and then tell others about it. In other words, go out and proclaim the gospel. The, the gospel is actually a miracle waiting to happen in someone's life because what the gospel is about is taking a dead heart that, that is, uh, if you want to say it this way, it, it's alive to the things of the world, but it's dead to God and dead to the things of God and dead to the holiness of God. And the only way that can be transformed is by God doing a work in your life, which would be a miracle. There's a guy um, in sort of cult pop culture lore. Um, his name is Miracle Max. Anybody know who Miracle Max was? There, there's a picture of him from the Princess Bride. Remember this guy? So they bring the guy. They think he's dead, the, the young prince who's in love, true love. So they think he's dead. And so they bring him to Miracle Max because they had heard that Miracle Max could perform miracles and he could, he could bring this guy back to life because he has a wedding to go to and he's, he's, he's got a destiny and all this stuff. And... And it's a four-minute YouTube video, and I thought about showing it, but I thought we might go long. So I'll just tell you a little bit about it. So they bring him in. 
It's very funny, by the way. You should look it up. They bring him in, and they set him down, and Miracle Max is examining him, and, and he starts to talk a little bit of trash, and he goes, look at you guys thinking you're so smart. Here's the problem. He's really not dead. He's not all the way dead. Remember the line? He's mostly dead, which means he's partly alive. And so then Miracle Max goes and gets that big um, air thing that you use for a fireplace, and he sticks it in the guy's mouth, and he does this a couple of times, and the, guy, and the guy's revived, and he's fine, and he goes on to you know, fulfill his destiny of, of true love. Miracle Max. That was not a miracle. The guy was still alive. If he was dead... It's a miracle that he came back to life. If your heart is dead to the things of God, it can't do anything to respond to the things of God until God works in your life. That is a miracle. If you've been saved, it's a miracle. And every gospel situation is, is a situation waiting for a miracle to happen as you share that, that gospel with people. And when you get saved, you become holy and blameless. Those are two more blessings in verse 4. We're holy and we're blameless. Holy literally means purity. We now have the purity of Jesus in us. And we're blameless. That word in Greek literally means you're free from guilt now. So many of us are walking around wondering what are we going to do with our guilt. Well, I'll tell you what. Give it to Jesus because he can handle it. And then verses 4 and 5, it says again, it says, In love, God has predestined us to this adoption. He, he predestined us in love. This is another blessing. That word predestined means previously ordained or appointed to a position. In other words, this happened way before you even considered Jesus as a fact in your life. And because of that, I would suggest this. The fact that God has predestined us is not an act of inequity, but rather it's an act of love. And we should look at it as such. I don't remember the exact day, but I remember the circumstance. I was 25 years old. I had just moved back to Phoenix from, from Houston. I was driving on the I-17, and, and, and I was literally just overcome with what a wretch I was. Now, I hadn't murdered anybody. Um, I, I, I hadn't um, cheated anybody in a business deal. I, you know, I, I, nothing, nothing like that. But, but nevertheless, I was just sitting and thinking, I'm really a miserable wretch. I'm self-centered. I have an agenda with every person I've ever met in my life, and that agenda revolves around me. And, and I'm not a very pleasant person. In every conflict, I compete to win and destroy other people. I'm a wretched person. And I started to talk to God. This is before I was saved. I started to talk to God. If you're out there, I don't even, whatever, I don't even know what I'm talking to or who I'm talking to. And I look back now, it was another two and a half years before I actually came to know Christ. But I look back on that now, and that's God already starting to work on my heart to soften my heart, to pull out that dead heart of stone and insert that new heart of flesh that would be open to the things of God. He knew me before I ever knew him. And that is an act of love, not inequity. And as a result, we're adopted. Verse 5, that's a blessing. We're his. We're sons and daughters and we're co-heirs in the kingdom of God, according to Romans. And this is all done according to the purpose of his will. I, I think our assumptions are so funny. I talked a little bit about this last week. Our assumption is that our will, our desires, the way we think about things, our perspective, that's always good. That's always honorable. And so we say things like, just follow your heart or be true to yourself. And we think we should follow our heart and be true to ourselves because how could we possibly make a mistake there? I'm a good person and my heart is very good. But God's will, his desires, well, those are suspect. 
we need to doubt those. He doesn't work on our timetable, and he doesn't know me the way he needs to know me so that I can, so I can figure these things out. And, and so God's will is not as good as our will, but Paul says, no, his will is perfect. His will is driven by his wisdom and his love, and so it's perfect. And in that purpose of his will, he gives us grace, verse 6. That's a blessing, grace. So here's the old Tom Schrader definition of grace. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. And then the follow-up question from Schrader. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You can't, you can't work your way to God, but that's our proclivity as human beings. Our proclivity is to try to work our way to God, to reach up to God and make ourselves worthy of his blessing, worthy of his acceptance, worthy of his presence. And there's really nothing we can do because we're already lawbreakers, James tells us in his little letter at the end of the New Testament. We're already lawbreakers. We already can't be in his presence, but in his love he reaches down to us through the resurrected Christ, through his Holy Spirit, and he draws us to him. Some of you may be here, and this is all new to you, and you're thinking, well, Christianity is just another religion. Well, maybe in one respect it is, but I can tell you that it's different from any other religion in this respect. Every other religion has as its motivational foundation some level of fear. If I don't do this, if I don't do this, if I don't keep from doing that, if I don't go and do this, if I don't clean myself, if I don't live this particular life, I won't be acceptable to God. I won't enjoy his favor. I won't get something from God. I won't be in his presence. That's not Christianity at all. The motivational foundation of Christianity is joy and gratitude because God has already done that for us through Christ. Christ lived the perfect life and fulfilled the law. Paul says in Romans, he did what the law could not do for us. He did it for us, and so we live in joy and gratitude, not in fear. And as a result of that grace, verse 7 says, we're redeemed, we have redemption. That word redemption literally means to be purchased out of slavery. And we say, uh, slavery? I, I wasn't, well, slavery to what? Well, slavery to sin. Uh, slavery to, to, to our proclivity towards doing that which is unholy. Slavery to the consequence of sin, having to live with the consequence of sin. Slavery to the guilt that sin brings into our life. Here you go. Slavery to the idea of trying to manage our sin. How many of us are managing our sin so that we can sin just enough to never get caught or hurt anybody else? That's slavery. And we've been redeemed from that slavery. There's a, there's a story about Abraham Lincoln that some biographers, I understand, have included. Others haven't because they question the veracity. But it fits so well here that I think I'll tell you the story. He went to an auction, a slave auction once, and, and he ended up purchasing a uh, 14 or 15-year-old African-American girl at the auction. And so after the auction, he went up to claim his, his uh, slave and, and so he got her and he pulled her aside and he said, okay, I have redeemed you now. I have bought you out of slavery. You are now free to go. You can go wherever you want. We'll, and we'll make sure you get there if you need help to get there, but you're now free to go wherever you want. She said, wait, wait a minute, I don't have to go with you? No, you don't have to go with you. You're fine now. You're free. You've been redeemed from slavery. And what did she say? Well, then I choose to go with you. You see, the idea is that because God has purchased us out of this slavery that our response would be that we want to be with him and we want to be in his presence and and he purchases us out of this slavery 
Paul says in Ephesians, by blood. That the atoning work is done by blood. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. That's what atonement is. It's, it's this exchange of Jesus' blood on the cross for our sin. His blood is what takes away our sin. And literally, uh, atonement means we are made at one with God. It's at one uh, a number of years ago, I told this story to this congregation about, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, I got a call from a guy that I went to Grand Canyon University with. We both uh, did biblical studies majors uh, there. And he said, hey, let's have lunch. You know, I'm pastoring this church now, and let's, you're pastoring a church. Let's have lunch. Let's get together. And some, for some reason, he, he at one point in the lunch drove the lunch towards this idea of blood atonement. And he was, he was ordained in a kind of a small denomination in the United States. About two million people are a part of this denomination. He was ordained as a pastor in this denomination. And he said, well, as a denomination, we have decided that we are no longer going to teach uh, uh, blood atonement. We're not going to teach that anymore. And I said, well, but that's what the Bible says, is the Bible says blood atonement. So why, why, would, why would you quit teaching blood atonement? And here's what he said. He said, as a denomination, we have found that blood atonement is offensive to most people and it seems overly violent. And so we don't want to teach something like that. And so then I asked what I thought was kind of the natural follow-up question to that. I said, well, then how do you achieve atonement? How does atonement happen? How do you achieve atonement? And here's what he said. He says, you, you uh, achieve atonement by just being a good person. That's how you atone for your sins. And then I said, I'm buying the lunch, right? Because now the lid is off and I'm going to ask you all kinds of questions, <laughs> okay? And just immediately I said, oh, okay, so here's my first How do you know that you're good enough? How do you know? Is that something you do? Or is, does God tell you? Is there a handwriting on the wall, sort of a Daniel 5 moment? How does that happen? Or is it just now you've become God? And then what about what Scripture teaches about human nature apart from God? You know, Jeremiah 17. We just went through this in Mark chapter 7, by the way, where Jesus says, it's not the evil outside of you that you need to be worried about, but the evil that's in All evil comes from our hearts. That's where evil comes from. We aren't good enough. We can never be good enough. There has to be this exchange that Jesus has done for us. So by that atonement, we then achieve forgiveness, verse 7. And we're blessed because we're forgiven. And then verse 7 talks about grace again, but this time it says the riches of his grace. So we're blessed by the, the riches of his grace. And, and that leads me to one of my favorite Bible verses, which is in 2 Corinthians, where Paul writes that, that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he chose to make himself poor for our sake so that through his poverty, you and I, might become rich and have the riches of God, which would be righteousness and justification. It's, it's a parallel to what he says in Philippians 2, where he says, Jesus Christ, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be latched onto and, and, and clung to, but rather he humbled himself and became as a man so that he could serve us by dying and going to the cross. He he died so that we could have life. He, he gave up his riches so that through his poverty, you and I could become rich. And verse 8, it says that his grace was lavished as a result of his wisdom and insight, which is also a blessing. 
human nature, we will do things for other people. We, will, we talked a little bit about this last week, that idea of manipulation and agendas and how I'm pretty good at that. Human beings, we tend to do things. It's known as social exchange. We'll do something because we think we might get something back. There's going to be a, a return on in our investment. We'll do things often to manipulate people or because there's a secret agenda. You know, quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. There was never a time when God came down and said, listen, I'm going to scratch your back, now you scratch my back. This is, this is absolute grace lavished through his wisdom and his insight, not because he has any agenda other than he wants to be in our presence. And then verse 9 says that he's revealed his mystery to us. That's a blessing too, but I'm going to come back and finish with that one. And then verse 10, it says that we are a part of God's plan. That is a blessing. We're a part of God's plan. And, and that it's, this plan is exercised in the fullness of time. In the Greek, there's actually two words that we translate as time. There's kairos, which is chronological time. What time is it? I'm sorry, there's chronos. Chronos, which is the chronological time. And then there's kairos, which is actually, it's more like timing. It's an agricultural term that means the harvest is ready to come in. It's, it's the right time. It's, a, it's the right opportunity. And that's the word that, that Paul uses here. It's, it's chronos, in the fullness of of the right time, the opportune time when he's going to harvest. This is God's plan. Verse 10 also says that we're blessed because of the unity that we have, although we are diverse. And then verse 11 says our inheritance. We're blessed because we have an inheritance in, in Jesus. And that inheritance is God's presence and the kingdom of God. We're a part of the kingdom of God now. It's been inaugurated. It's just not consummated. But when that consummation comes in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, we're going to be a part of that too. We're co-heirs with Jesus in that. And it says that our inheritance, again, is predestined. Uh, Stephen Baugh, who's a New Testament scholar, he writes this. This is in sharp contrast to the pagan world in which Paul was writing, especially in Ephesus. Pagans understood their gods to be fickle. They could easily and arbitrarily change their minds at any time. God's predestination gives his people comfort because they know that all who come to Christ do so with the guarantee of God's power, enabling, and anointing. We are sealed with the Spirit. And that means, verse 11, we're blessed because we're a part of God's purpose. God's purpose, him working all things together for his good pleasure and in his will. I think that's pretty cool that we're a part of that, that, that God working all things together. Uh, Tim Keller uh, it tells an interesting story about when he was a freshman in college. This is 45, 50 years ago. He's a freshman in college and he chose to take a music appreciation class. And so he had to listen to Mozart in this music appreciation class. Well, why did he have to listen to Mozart? Well, because he wanted to get an A in his music appreciation class. Well, why? Well, because if he got an A, he could keep his scholarship and he could stay in school. Why? Well, because, because then he could get his bachelor's degree. Well, why is that important? Well, because you can't, you can't apply to graduate school and get graduate degrees unless you have a bachelor's degree. And so I want to be able to get bachelor's, uh, I mean, master's degree, advanced degrees. Well, why is that? Well, because then I can get a good job and I can make a decent living. And so Keller says, so ultimately what I did was I listened to Mozart in order to make money. Now he says, I spend all kinds of money to listen to Mozart, my own money. I buy Mozart CDs. I go to Mozart symphonies. I follow Mozart on Twitter. 
I don't know if he has a Twitter handle, but he, 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 does, he, he follows Mozart. He, he wants to listen to Mo- And why? Why the change? Why did he listen to Mozart in order to make money? And now he spends his money in order to make, listen to Mozart. It's because he began to realize that, that Mozart is beautiful in itself. The music is beautiful in itself. Suddenly, Mozart is no longer a means to an end, but it's in the end itself. Well, that's what Jesus is for us. He said on the cross, it is finished. He is the end. He is not a means to something else. We, we, don't, we don't live a godly life in order to get something from God. We, we live the life of the gospel in order to get more God, in, in order to be with God, not to manipulate God or to get him or to do a quid pro quo thing. Again, our motivational foundation in the gospel is one of joy and gratitude. And that leads to hope. Verse 12, we have hope. And this hope has been sealed and it's guaranteed. We talk a lot in the world about hope. And and, and I want you to see this. Worldly hope is way different than gospel hope. Worldly hope is is a hope where there really is no guarantee, right? I mean, we, we hope for things like Man, I hope I get the job. I hope I get into graduate school. I hope I get the promotion. I hope I get a raise. I hope we close escrow on the house. I hope I can negotiate a good deal for that car. I hope the Cardinals win, a, win the Super Bowl. I, I, I hope she says yes when I ask her out. I hope he doesn't ask me out. Whatever, whatever that hope is, you know, the great, here you go. The, the biggest disappointing worldly hope, I think, is, is any restaurant, especially fast food restaurants that have pictures of their food. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you, uh, I'd like an ultimate cheeseburger at Jack in the Box, and they bring it out, and I say, I ordered the ultimate cheeseburger. That looks like a burrito bowl. No, that's the ultimate cheeseburger. There's a picture over there that said, no, that's, no. Okay. That's not the biblical hope. The biblical hope is guaranteed. It's been sealed by the Spirit. Here you go. I think I told this story Christmas Eve a couple of years ago. Um, If you were here, you've forgotten it. And if you weren't here, you're going to hear it for the first time. Here's what I think biblical hope looks like. This is the closest I can get. And I'm sorry, it's a hockey story. So hang in there with me, okay? So in 1999, the Dallas Stars were playing the Buffalo Sabres for the Stanley Cup. And I, and I wanted the Dallas Stars to win because they had a player on their team named Mike Madonna who had never won a Stanley Cup. And I loved Mike Madonna and I wanted him to win a Stanley Cup. And so game five finishes and Dallas wins game five and they go up in the series three games to two. It's best of seven. They could win the Stanley Cup in game six, only game six is on a Saturday night and I've been scheduled to speak at a church in Kingman Saturday night and Sunday morning for two services. So now, and and I'm speaking during the, the game six, so I can't watch it. And so now I come up with a plan. So I asked Jackie, this is back in the days of video tapes, okay, those big cassette things, you know. I said, would you please tape the game for me? And she said, sure. And so here was my plan. I'm going to go up to Kingman. I'm going to avoid uh, ESPN. I'm not going to talk to anybody about hockey in Kingman, which is a really easy thing to do. I'm I'm not going to read the newspapers. Uh, For those of you that don't know what newspapers were, that's how we got our news before the internet. I'm not going to look at any of those things Saturday night, Sunday morning. And as soon as that last service is over Sunday morning, I'm going to get in my car, go through Jack in the Box, get my burrito bowl, ultimate cheeseburger thing. I'm going to drive home, eat my lunch, and I'll get home about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, pop in the tape, and I'll watch game six as if I'm watching it unfold for me. And the plan worked to perfection until I was about 10 yards from my driveway, literally. 
The only other hockey fan in Maricopa County was a neighbor of mine named Bill who lived down the street, and he saw me driving up, and my window was down, and he literally sprinted out of his front yard down the street towards my house yelling, Frank, Frank, did you see it? Brad Hall scored the overtime winning goal in game six. Dallas won their Stanley Cup, and I'm trying to roll up the window. (laughs) Thanks, Bill. I went in and watched the game anyway. But here's the difference. I knew the ending. It was guaranteed. It was sealed by Bill, who was acting as my Holy Spirit at that moment. <laughs> it was sealed for me. It was what I, I watched it with, with an expectation that was guaranteed, not just... And, and it wasn't, I don't know, it was kind of cool, but still. That's what biblical hope is. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, and it really is. And as a result, we're blessed in verse 13 because we've received truth. We talked about that last week. We've received salvation. Talked about that all morning this morning. And verse 13, we were given the ability to believe by God, to have faith, to trust. The the word in Greek is the same word that we use, the, the, the same three words that we use to translate. Believe, trust, and faith. They're all the same word in Greek. And and that salvation has been sealed. It can never be lost or taken from us. You can't lose what what you didn't do anything for in the first place. And it's guaranteed there's no pressure of some performance standard. And there's never a time when you have to say, Did I make it in? Did I make the cut? Was I good enough? You never have to do that because it's not you who makes it, it's Jesus who made it for you and we just live in him and then the last blessing is that we're going to take possession of it we have a taste of that possession now but when Jesus comes again we'll take full possession of that inheritance and that salvation it's pretty awesome right 24 blessings do you think that we could live in joy and thanksgiving because of the way God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing but it's not just about living with joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. It's also about the idea that God's plan for his people, New Testament and Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament, you understand that his plan for his people is that we are blessed not to hoard the blessing, but to be a blessing. That, that, that we put hands and feet on the gospel and actually receive the blessing of the gospel and then we go out and proclaim the blessing of the gospel by being servants in our community, by loving other people, even unlovable people, and people can be unlovable, amen? But we love them anyway because Christ has loved us at our most unlovable. And so we, we seek to be a blessing because we've already received this blessing. That mystery, that mystery of his will, though, in verse 9, I said I was going to come back to that. There's two ways that this mystery is manifested, and I want to close with this. Number one, the mystery is that the long-awaited Messiah, the Jews had waited centuries and centuries for the Messiah. The mystery is that, that that happened, that was revealed in Jesus, and God has revealed that to his people. The, the, the mystery for the Jews, Paul even says, this is very mysterious to the Jews. And the mystery is that the righteousness of God comes through the finished work of Christ and not through the observation of the law. That's a mystery. But the second way that this is a mystery is really, this mystery is played out through the cross. It's the mystery of the cross. I like to call it the mystery of reversal. That that everything we think is right side up is actually upside down. And Jesus then reverses everything and makes it 
right side up. The mystery of reversal is that the last are going to be first. The mystery of the reversal is that Jesus, God, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The mystery of reversal is the, is the, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16 where the rich man has everything he'd ever wanted in this world but ends up separated from God for eternity and Lazarus ends up in God's presence in Abraham's bosom for all of eternity. That's the mystery of reversal. And that, 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 that mystery of reversal is played out nowhere more than at the cross. The Jews have this understanding that in order to go into the presence of God, you had to be ceremonially clean. You had to fix yourself up for God before you could enter his presence. You had to be good enough for God before you could enter his presence. And so the mystery is that Jesus made other people good enough for God by going to something that was an anathema in God's eyes that was totally unclean in God's eyes. He went to the cross. Things like death and, and nudity and humiliation and bodily fluids and darkness, those are all those are all uncleanness according to the law and according to the Jews. And Jesus experienced all of them. You just think about the bodily fluids. that The, G, the, the Jews said, if you, if you even come in contact with any sort of bodily fluid, you've been made unclean for the presence of God. And yet there's Jesus, saliva coming out of his mouth, perspiration just drenching down his face. He's bleeding, more bodily fluids. He's, he's urinating on himself. We know from, from history that everybody who got crucified eventually fouled themselves. And it wasn't just from the inside that Jesus was unclean, but, but also on the outside as people hurled spit at him and hurled other unclean things at him and they despised him there. And again, it just reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 where he said, he who was clean became unclean for our sake so that you and I might be made clean and have the righteousness of God. A few months ago, we, we looked at Mark chapter 5. And I just want to bring that up again as we close. There's, it's the beginning of the first 20 verses of Mark 5 where, where Jesus and the boys cross the, the Sea of Galilee to the other side and they're met immediately by the demoniac from the Gerasenes. And the demoniac comes up to him and the demoniac is living among the dead. He's living among the tombs and he's naked and he's despised in his community by his people and he's humiliated and he's mumbling incoherently and Jesus saves him. Jesus recreates him. He's a new creation. Jesus gives him his life back and yet that's a, that's a picture, a foreshadowing of what happened to Jesus on the cross. You understand that Jesus was among the dead on the cross other people were being crucified and they died. Jesus was mumbling, some people said, incoherently at the cross. Jesus was naked at the cross. He was, he was humiliated and he was despised by the people. But the last thing Jesus said wasn't mumbled and everybody got it. He said, it is finished. Jesus became the demoniac so that you and I could be made righteous in God's sight. It is finished. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for every spiritual blessing for which you have blessed us with. And God, we thank you that Paul has recorded these for us so that we can revel in that blessing, so that we can understand our identity, and so that we can know that we have the power to be a blessing to others and to bless you by that. God, help us to live for your glory and not ours, and we can do that 
by the blood and the power of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.